0: Hi, Victoria, how are you?
1: Hi, well, thank you. How are you?
2: Good, good. Nice seeing you. I opened the room uh, before because it will be the first time um, for Vasco to use Klapal, so he he wanted to come a little bit earlier, so, like 10 minutes earlier. So,
1: we can do. Hi, everybody. Oh go ahead. Oh no, I'm I was sorry. To say, and we can do that. It's great to be able to um, accommodate when possible. To say yes.
2: And yeah. So, yeah, I agree. So it will be exciting, to talk. really interested in this. And he's from Lisbon, like he's in, in Lisbon. I was gonna
1: ask you because it like you said basco. And not basco. yeah
2: exactly uh i know in spanish you say it more b interestingly when you were in the north of portugal where i'm from people tend to say the v a little bit more b too but it's considered as a you know like a not very nice sounding um language type of portuguese the
1: north yeah, and also the s yeah, left s exactly. it's also special
2: <laughs> yeah in porto it's more like the rough portugal like it used to be industrial and rough and uh, people speak more like bad words and It's very different in Lisbon.
0: You go to Lisbon, it's very different how people speak. It's very funny, (laughs) actually. Okay, well, I look forward to learning firsthand. Especially the rough language. Yeah, (laughs) it's really rough.
2: We (laughs) let our hair down (laughs) in the morning uh, when people are not from Porto, and the people from the market, especially the women from the market, on the early buses, they talk very rough and like, (laughs) yeah, everyone is kind of afraid of
0: them. It's very funny,
2: and <laughs> people are very puzzled when they are not from to They like, uh, yeah, they don't put anything, no filter. They comment on every guy that passes by. It's, it's like you imagine, like, like rough men. Like that's how they are. Just. <laughs> it's
1: very funny. Well, it's interesting with no filter because I was just writing and I was. I was writing about the ocean and what if we could see through the water you know like what if people could see the ocean without the water and see everything that was in there would the ocean be treated any better any differently so then I was um, putting it toward people too you know if we could see what you know what we were all carrying or what we'd all experienced so these women they're, they're um, speaking outdoors as they might speak indoors, as you said, no filter.
0: Hi, Nerdish. How are you? <laughs> nice to see you.
3: Hello, thank you for having me. I was just curious, uh, when are we gonna start the talk? Sorry. Wait a minute.
1: <laughs> uh, okay. Well, On the top of the our hour, our guest needs to arrive. Hour. So neither of us are uh, Bashko Guerra. So it's his talk. All
0: right. Great. Thank you.
1: This is what's known as idle chit chat before the room, before the guest arrives.
3: I've never been early, so.
1: (laughs) It's a treat.
0: Yeah, we share knowledge no one needs.
2: (laughs) Before the talk, that to make a nice comparison to what's
1: interesting, what's not. <laughs> <laughs> other otherwise we'll just start talking about food. And so oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
2: it's also a very good topic. Um, no, we'll start soon. Um I'm a guest speaker who is never on Clubhouse before, so we open up the room. A little bit before, so he can figure out how to come on here. And yeah, if you think this is an interesting topic, maybe share the room, and um, we will start soon. So I'm really looking forward. In the meantime, please check out the the paper. It should be open source. Please tell me if it's not. I sometimes, yeah, no, it's open source. I see the open lock.
1: So, let it out, let it out. Say how you feel.
2: (laughs) I don't know, she started barking recently. It's very funny. In the beginning, she was never barking the puppy, but now she barks. That's
1: really adorable. In instalments, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, she doesn't bark too much. So that's good.
1: It's her voice though, you know? I think about that sometimes with dogs and and we can become so annoyed with hearing their barking. But how would that feel, you know, to be treated like that? Like shh, shh, no barking, no speaking.
2: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Namano, no, that's a good
0: one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm I... The dog. yeah I agree. Uh she just stops also. Like she usually just bikes. She's like really asleep and you go into the room she is and she doesn't realize right away what's going on. Uh then she like
1: barks is barking. Do you see? <laughs> no, no. Do you see? You know. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to be her, trying so hard. I like the, the pink bow especially.
2: Yeah, and um yeah, or if she really wants
0: to play, or you to do something, then she barks, but that's fine. Okay. Uh... Hello. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
1: I, <laughs> I was thinking, okay, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, that now was Let's it. begin our discussion. That was it. Please read the paper and good luck. <laughs> Lots of funding. <laughs> <laughs> so mushrooms are looking really nice this fall. They're off to a good start here.
2: Yeah, it rained a lot, right, this fall? I guess, I don't know how it is.
1: Well, actually, we've got yeah. fires and we need some rain. It's supposed to rain uh, next weekend. We re- yeah, there's, there's fire about an hour and a half south and now I see one about an hour and a half to the north as well. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, we get, We had, yeah. yeah. Just Somehow the mushrooms are are um, emerging, and they're they're beautiful.
2: Well, that's a good sign, right? That's a healthy sign of the of the ground. We, I don't know. Yeah, we should invite back our guest speaker about the microbiome of you know after fire.
1: Yes, yes, yes. I thought you were going to say the guest speaker who was talking about behavior of dogs in response to people. Because I was. <laughs> So I saw what Nerdish Road and, um. yeah, what would that be like? Maybe dogs are telling us to shut up. Maybe that is what they're saying. But yes, the microbiome
0: after fire. Oh, yeah, I would
2: tell. I would bark all the time, <laughs> to be honest.
1: <laughs> Oh, but, yeah. I don't know if I would stick I wouldn't stick my head out of a car and let my tongue and ears
2: <laughs> oh, <never mind. laughs> oh that one yeah yeah that don't
1: probably not so
2: many bugs that well this did you um realize um that the um, when you drive with a car back in time you used to have like I don't know, the windshield full of bugs, like completely full, no? But now when you drive long distances, it's almost clean. Like There's not too many bugs anymore.
1: And and it's, wow. And it's not because, I was thinking it, you know, maybe it's because of aerodynamic design. Hey, nerdish.
3: Yeah, I didn't, that's a good point. I have not realized that. But you just made that May aware of it. That That is very surprising.
1: I'm seeing more butterflies, though, where I'm on the West Coast. But, hmm, yeah, gnats and large, squished things. Wow. Really, Katharina, I thought you were going to say, you know, a really positive reason, but not a reason that had to do with diminishing populations. Yeah. Mm.
2: I mean, there is, and also, yeah, there is, and also light pollution and so on messes up their like rhythm and stuff. But, um, there's less wetlands, you know, we dried them all out. And, um, yeah, and less like land, like just wildflowers and stuff where they can just hang out and of their life, but yeah, it's a huge difference. I know that when we used to drive through Europe, it was like, (laughs) you couldn't see anything. You would have to stop at gas station every time and clean the windshield, but that's not the case anymore. Yeah, our guest speaker should be there anytime he wrote me that he would join earlier.
1: Um, Is there a time confusion perhaps? With the guest speaker?
2: Uh, no, he said exactly the right time and he would be mm-hmm. there. Hmm. Maybe. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it's just, I don't <laughs> have his phone number. No. <laughs> I wrote him an email saying that we started, so uh, I hope. He, he made an account because he was part of the list. So he made an account beforehand and he said he will be there 15 minutes
1: earlier. So, so he's um, not in Twitter spaces.
2: <laughs> no, no, I sent him the link for Clubhouse and he made a Clubhouse account. Thank you, Amish. He was part of the, the speaker list, um, but maybe he's having issues Maybe, you know, a lot of guests, because since they are used to give talks on Zoom, they try to do it on the desktop, and then it's kind of, the desktop app is really not um, very intuitive. Um, yeah, so in the meantime, should we talk a little bit in general about the topic, maybe? I was
1: just Googling it. Yeah, I was just, I just found um, a plasma reactor could help astronauts breathe on Mars, and. Um, blasting CO2 molecules inside a plasma reactor. I could send that. Yeah,
2: Yeah, so he won a few prizes for his research. Um, Maybe I can start with that because it's not really, you know, he doesn't have to. Yes, yes, that's
1: a great (laughs) idea. That's a great, we can welcome him in absentia. In exactly. the hopes that it will exactly. conjure his presence. Please <laughs> yes. help us manifest our speaker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We call on our listeners. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, so Vasco Guerra is a uh, part of the Department of Physics and the Institute of Plasma and Fusion, like nuclear fusion, and the Superior Institute uh, in Lisbon. And um he um for the ongoing when he was doing this research he won the prestigious William Crookes prize um, for his <coughs> research and um, he is um, so the prize was um, for his outstanding contribution to the modeling of molecular low temperature plasmas um, I can share his uh, link uh, shortly um, to his web, like to the website where shortly is described. Um, And um, he um, so the low temperature plasma, such as the self-consistent kinetic modeling of N2O2 and um, other plasmas under discharge and post discharge Discharge conditions, including the strong cop- coupling between electron and vibrational kin- kinetics, together with chemical and ion chem- um, kinetics. He is also a senior member of the gas discharges and gases electronics group in the Institute of um, the Nuclear Fusion and Plasmas, and um, he's associate professor of the physics department. Um, yeah um, he uh, gave I can share this link with you where he gave um, a talk about uh, his research and um, here in the chat I will post the link um, of the website that I just shared right now uh, about this price um yeah, he, um, he said on this website, which is quite funny, that he uh, didn't get a PhD in biology. Apparently he's asked a lot of times um, if he did. So you um, know, he's a physics professor. Um, and um, yeah, please check out, so the European Space Agency um, supported the project Um, this specific project um, the ISRU on Mars plasma conversion of CO2 from the Martian atmosphere um, was awarded um, and um, ISRU stands for in situ resource utilization and that is the harvesting of resources on the exploration site that would have to be brought from earth otherwise So this is the program um, that supported this research, um, where basically you have the, um, you have to um, solve problems where you basically, where basically we need to bring the least with us and you can use resources that you find on Mars to survive and to grow plants, uh, to breathe air and so on and so forth. So, he won one of those awards and, and did this research um, that uh, was published, and you see the link that's on top. So, um, what this work is about is that um, he's discussing how you could uh, combine non thermal plasmas and conducting membranes for in situ resource utilization on Mars. And um, they are doing this by converting different molecules directly from the Martian atmosphere, plasmas, and create the necessary feedstock and base chemicals for processing fuels, breathing oxygen, building materials, and fertilizers. Um, These uh, different plasma sources operate accordingly to different principles. And they are associated with distinct dominant psychochemical mechanisms Um, using this diversity allows exploring different energy transfer pathways leading to co2 dissociation including direct electron impact processes plasma chemistry mediated by vibrationally and electronically excited states and thermally driven dissociation The coupling of plasmas with membranes is still a technology under development, but the synergistic effect between plasma decomposition and oxygen permeation across conducting membranes is anticipated. This emerging technology is versatile, scalable, and has the potential to deliver high rates of production of molecules per kilogram of instrumentation center space. Therefore, it will likely play a very relevant role in future ISRU strategies. So, um, yeah. So the purpose is that space flight programs are expanding in all kinds of countries, and humans will try to colonize space and become multi-planetary species. And to open up the solar system for human exploration and colonization, Um, there will be several space missions targeted to the moon and the Mars. And um, the goals, um, a landmark is NASA's Artemis 3 missions, which foresees landing humans on the surface of the moon in 2024 and the first astronauts to uh, walk on the moon over 50 years. Um, and with the sustained present on the moon, uh, we, we will use that uh, knowledge to acquire on and around the moon to take next giant leap, sending the first astronauts to Mars. Let me see in the meantime if
1: I get the response from guest speaker here. Katharina um, I found a, a sweet article. I mean it's it's sort of um, maybe be redundant because of what you've shared but it's a short article from Science August 2022 about this project. If you'd like me to share it or read it. Uh,
2: yeah go ahead and share.
1: Thank you. yeah And Joyce did you want to say something before I do? Okay. So, so here's an article um, titled, Plasma Reactors Could Create Oxygen on Mars, and subtitled is exciting, Approach Splits Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide But Still Has Kinks to Work Out. So hopefully we'll get to hear about those kinks. Last year, NASA achieved something science fiction writers have been dreaming about for decades. It created oxygen on Mars. A microwave-sized device attached to the agency's Perseverance rover converted carbon dioxide into 10 minutes of breathable oxygen. Now, physicists say, they've come up with a way to use electron beams in a plasma reactor to create far more oxygen, potentially in a smaller package. The technique might someday not just help astronauts breathe on the red planet, but could also serve as a way to create fuel and fertilizer, says Michael Hecht. An experimental scientists at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. But Hecht, who leads the oxygen-making rover instrument, says the new approach still has a number of challenges to overcome before it can hitch a ride to our solar neighbor. When Perseverance landed in Jezero crater in 2020, it carried the oxygen in situ resource utilization experiment, AKA MOXIE, and the device draws in Martian air, which is 95% CO2. By pumping a current between two oppositely charged electrodes in an electrochemical cell, MOXIE can split the CO2 into carbon monoxide and oxygen ions. The oxygen ions then combine with each other to produce oxygen gas. The experiment has been a successful proof of concept, but to work MOXIE needs to pressurize and heat Martian air, requiring extra parts that consume energy and make it bulky. Bashko-Gera, A physicist at University of Lisbon thought a plasma reactor might be a better approach. A beam of electrons accelerated to a specific energy level can split carbon dioxide into its component ions or plasma, just like MOXIE. Moreover, a plasma reactor would be well suited to the Martian atmosphere, which is about 100 times thinner than Earth's. Creating and accelerating a beam of electrons in the thin air is much easier. Gera says there's an ideal pressure for plasma operation. He says Mars has a precise has precisely this correct pressure in The lab he and his colleagues pumped air designed to match the pressure and composition of Mars into thin metal tubes unlike Moxie they didn't need to compress or heat the air yet by firing an electron beam into the reaction chamber they were able to convert about 30 percent of the air into oxygen they estimate that the device could create about 14 grams of oxygen per hour which is enough to support 28 minutes of breathing the team reports today in the journal of applied physics Geras' team still needs to solve some practical problems notes To work on Mars, the plasma device would need a portable power source and a place to store the oxygen it makes, all of which could make it just as, if not more bulky than MOXIE, he says. If space agencies were willing to spend millions of dollars developing it, as NASA did with MOXIE, the plasma approach could mature, Hecht says. He especially likes how the electron beam could be tuned to split other atmospheric molecules, such as nitrogen, to create fertilizer. There's nothing wrong with the plasma technique other than it's a lot less mature than Moxie, he says. And that's the article. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, um, I
1: think it would be And the nitrogen. Yeah, sorry, go ahead.
2: Don't you think it will be also important for Earth, like the more we keep screwing up our world, that we, that we will need this technology at some point? Like if we keep killing, especially the ocean
1: ecosystem is dying oh quite God. rapidly. Yes, I was just reading about, um, about phytoplankton, you know, and we get, I think it's about 80% of our oxygen from the plankton, from those little guys and how, how challenged they are. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was really, mm, that's sobering, Katarina, <laughs> to think, um, that we're destroying what we have. So we need to generate more when we have this beautiful, beautiful, um, you know, oxygen factory and
2: yeah, it's sad, but, um, I mean, in order to be able to scale this for our population, I mean, we need really endless energy supply, which we would need cold fusion, uh, like not cold fusion, like fusion um, to develop for this because, you know, we need to clean the water, we need to um, desalinate it, we need to clean or make clean air or oxygen. So, so this will be very costly. Um, so I think, I mean, it's important that we are working on it for Mars, but <laughs> people maybe use it first here. I don't know.
1: Um, or maybe, may since it's since it's dealing with CO two, maybe it would be something that would be used if, for example, we had underground living situations. So, so you know, the people that are there there we are producing lots of CO two, and without any. Um, you know tweaking of of the air then we would create a Martian situation and so it could be used there small scale
2: yeah I read uh, a paper the other day that there is a theory that um, life itself um, like a destroyed uh, the 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 environment so much on Mars, including the you know oxygen and whatever they needed, that life itself destroyed it. Um, you know, like microorganisms and stuff. Um, I have to look it up, but it's a theory that most of the time, actually, life destroys than life faster. Then it can evolve into larger organisms, which is kind of an interesting um theory, and that's why maybe we can't we don't find it as abundantly as we as we assume we would because it just um, flares up basically and destroys itself quite fast with the byproducts uh life produces. Go ahead,
1: Joyce. I was just saying that's very interesting we we kind of thinking that, you know, maybe we have to evolve to this point to destroy the planet, but maybe not, I mean, to destroy life, you know, evolve to the point where we can alter the environment so much like we're doing in the industrial society. But what you said is very interesting that it could happen just from, you know, changes in the microorganisms and what they were doing to the atmosphere. It's very interesting yeah I'm just again going yeah with microorganisms going back to the plankton because normally in a day and then seasonally you know they migrate up and down so they they're migrating up so they can uh, photosynthesize you know they're closer to sunlight and then they're migrating down um, it's believed so that they avoid predation but if we're killing them you know on the up when they're up there um you know, rising temperatures and altered light. Uh,
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I I shared the I I shared the article in the chat. Um, First Martian life likely broke the planet with climate change made themselves extinct. The microbes could have created a reverse greenhouse effect which made the planet inhospitable. Ancient microbial life on Mars could have destroyed the planet's atmosphere through climate change, which ultimately led to its extinction, new research suggested. The new theory comes from a climate modeling study that simulated hydrogen-consuming methane-producing microbes living on Mars roughly 3.7 billion years ago. At the time, atmospheric conditions were similar to those that existed on ancient Earth during the same period. But instead of creating an environment that would help them thrive and evolve, as happened on Earth, Martian microbes may have doomed themselves just as they were getting started, according to the study published October 10th in the journal Nature Astronomy. The model suggests that the the reason life thrived on Earth was doomed on Mars is because of the gas composition of the two planets and their relative distance from the sun. Being farther away from our star than Earth, Mars was more reliant on a potent fog of heat-trapping greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide and hydrogen to maintain hospitable temperatures for life. So as ancient Martian microbes ate hydrogen. A potent greenhouse gas and produced methane, a significant greenhouse gas on Earth, but less potent than hydrogen, they slowly ate into their planet's heat, trapping blanket, eventually making Mars so cold that it could no longer evolve complex life. Um, as Martian surface temperatures drop from material tolerable range between 68 and 14 degrees 10 to 20 degrees celsius fahrenheit um, to a punishing minus 70 fahrenheit or 57 celsius the microbes fled deeper and deeper into the warmer crust of the planet borrowing more than 0.6 mile one kilometer deep only a few hundred million years after the cooling event to find evidence for their theory, the researchers want to find out if any of these ancient microbes survived. Traces of methane have been detected on Mars sparse atmosphere by satellites as well as in the form of alien burps spotted by NASA's Curiosity rover, which could be evidence that the microbes still exist. The scientists believe their findings
0: <coughs> um
2: wait it was messed up. The, um, the scientists believe their findings suggest that life um, may not be innately self-sustaining in every conducive environment. It pops up, it pops in, and that it can easily wipe itself out by accidentally destroying the foundation for its own existence. The ingredients of life are everywhere in the universe," um, said lead author Boris Sotir. and astrobiologist at the institute de Le local normal supérieure in paris uh, france told space.com so it's possible that life appears regularly in the universe but the inability of life to maintain habitable conditions on the surface of the planet makes it go extinct very fast our experiment takes it even a step further as it shows that even a very primitive biosphere can have a completely self-destructive effect. Yeah, so we were lucky that we had the right distance, apparently, um, yeah, to to be warm enough. <laughs> we eat up greenhouses.
1: Yeah, and it also just shows how how important greenhouse gases are in the development, you know, and how it, it's just very um, prone to being affected and then having dramatic con- consequences. So it's very, very interesting. I'm so curious what Howard Shore would have to say about this, because you remember he was speaking here about a kind of collective evolution. And I know it's... Um, kind of anthropomorphizing to, uh, you know, try to think of, um, you know, that it's happening on purpose, but maybe for survival purposes, we could think of it that way. Um, And I don't know, maybe we have a, you know, presupposed outcome of survival and maybe the outcome was just to create this Martian atmosphere that exists now. But I'm, I'm just curious what, you know how he might apply that his his philosophy to that situation but i love that that idea that um that i guess that final statement the ingredients of life are everywhere in the universe that's really thought provoking in an exciting way so it's possible that life appears regularly in the universe
2: hmm. yeah i mean we had a guest speaker here that he showed um that even proteins could even form on stardust. Do you remember? And quite easily, uh, that all the ingredients are there very abundantly and proteins are theorized to be, you know. I mean, a lot goes into RNAs first, but um, RNAs are very, like they need very precise environments to survive. They are very fragile. Uh, If you worked, I don't know if anyone ever worked with RNA, but you need to um, wipe everything. I did
1: extraction of RNA for viral load.
2: Don't you think it's so puzzling how people think that was the first building blocks because you need so precise, very careful environment for it
1: to survive. What they do is so precise and maybe that's maybe that's the reason. But I I just wanted to interject that that again, you know, what you're saying and the idea that ingredients of life are everywhere in the universe, it makes me think of um, you know, if anybody has kids or you've ever taken care of kids and they come into you and say, I'm really hungry, and then you tell them, Go in the kitchen, make something, there's plenty to eat. You know, there's if you look, you can find something. So it sounds like, you know, on a grander scale, that's what the universe is like. You want to make life the ingredients are there just go find them
2: yeah so he showed that to create protein is actually not a big deal uh, even on stardust out there in the universe and then um yeah some you know some other labs focus on on rna but more in and conditions here on earth like in the ocean and so on and um but maybe a combination of both is necessary, I guess, um, you know, it is necessary for the life we have now and then DNA and so on, but to form in the beginning proteins are really easy. Um, I don't know, the, we can, we can just talk about it. It's not like anyone knows 100% for sure. Don't you think it's like proteins are like the analog creative idea like um like you would build something out of wood or something. But then if you go and use DNA and RNA, it's more like you want to become more elaborate and program like a robot that you made out of um stuff that it has behavior and different things. Like the most simple thing you can buy, uh, you can build more complex is out of just raw, materials you find out there. But if you wanna program it to have different functions and do different things, you then go and program stuff, use algorithms. That, that's kind of kind of how I imagine it. Like I would bring it later on if, you know, first you build stuff and then you kind of want the stuff you build to do certain things to self-sustain. So then you add like DNA or like RNA,
0: DNAs and stuff like that.
1: I'm just going over that article about um, peptides on Stardust may have provided a shortcut to life and comparing that to how um, protein synthesis in, in a cellular situation versus on Stardust and how um, this, the vacuum and absence of water facilitates that. Um, that is, it, yeah. You wanna read some of it? Yeah, Go I ahead. Could. You, yeah, I could, yeah. Okay, this is an article from Quantum Magazine. Um, it's from, okay, it's good. It's current March 8th, 2022. <clears throat> and just stop me if it gets, um, it's uh, It's a few, it's a little, okay. It's just a little longer than the other one. So stop me at any time, please. Um, I won't hurt my feelings. Billions, okay, the title, it is titled, Peptides on Stardust May Have Provided a Shortcut to Life. Um, Billions of years ago, some unknown location on the sterile primordial earth became a cauldron of complex molecules from which the first cells emerged. Origin of life researchers have proposed countless imaginative ideas about how that occurred and where the necessary raw ingredients came from. Some of the most difficult to account for are proteins, the critical backbones of cellular chemistry, because in nature today, they're made exclusively by living cells how did the first protein form without life to make it scientists have mostly looked for clues on earth yet a new discovery suggests that the answer could be found beyond the sky inside dark interstellar clouds Last month in Nature Astronomy, a group of astrobiologists, yay astrobiology, showed that peptides, the molecular subunits of proteins, can spontaneously form on the solid frozen particles of cosmic dust drifting through the universe. And those peptides could, in theory, have traveled inside comets and meteorites to the young Earth and to other worlds to become some of the starting materials for life. The simplicity and favorable thermodynamics of this new space mechanism excuse me of this new space based mechanism for forming peptides make it a more promising alternative to the known purely chemical processes that could have occurred on a lifeless earth according to serge krasnokutsky the lead author, or Sergei, excuse me, the lead author on the new paper and a researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy and the Friedrich Schiller Institute in Germany. And that simplicity suggests that proteins were among the first molecules involved in the evolutionary process leading to life, he said. Whether those peptides could have survived their arduous trek from space and contributed meaningly to the origin of life is very much an open question. Paul Falkowski, a professor at the School of Environmental and Biological Sciences at Rutgers University said that the chemistry demonstrated in the new paper is very cool, but doesn't yet bridge the phenomenal gap between proto-prebiotic chemistry and the first evidence of life. And he added, there's a spark that's still missing. Still, the finding by Krasnokutsky and his colleagues show that peptides might be a much more readily available resource throughout the universe than scientists believed, a possibility that could also have consequences for the prospects for life elsewhere. This is the good part. Cells make the production of proteins look easy. They manufacture both peptides and proteins extravagantly empowered by the environment's rich and useful molecules like amino acids and their own stockpiles of genetic instructions and catalytic enzymes, which are themselves typical proteins. But before cells existed, there wasn't an easy way to do it on Earth, Krasniewiczki said. Without any of the enzymes that biochemistry provides, the production of peptides is an efficient two-step process that involves first making amino acids and then removing the water as amino acids link up into chains in a process called polymerization. Both steps have a high energy barrier, so they occur only if large amounts of energy are available to help kickstart the reaction. And because of these requirements, most theories about origin of proteins have either centered on scenarios in extreme environments such as near hydrothermal vents in the ocean floor or assume the presence of molecules like RNA with catalytic properties that could lower the energy barrier enough to push the reactions forward. The most popular origin of life theory proposes that RNA preceded all other molecules, including proteins. And Even under those circumstances, Krasnokutsky said that special conditions would be needed to concentrate the amino acids enough for polymerization. Although there have been many proposals, it isn't clear how and where those conditions could have arisen on the primordial earth. But now, researchers say they've found a shortcut to proteins, a simpler chemical pathway that re-energizes the theory that proteins were present very early in the genesis of life. Last year, in low-temperature physics, the that's a periodical, Krasnokutsky predicted through a series of calculations that a more direct way to make peptides could exist under the conditions available in space inside the extremely dense and frigid clouds of dust and gas that linger between stars. These molecular clouds, the nurseries of new stars and solar systems, are packed with cosmic dust and chemicals, some of the most abundant of which are carbon monoxide, atomic carbon, and ammonia. In their new paper, Krasnokutsky and his colleagues showed that these reactions in the gas clouds would likely lead to the condensation of carbon in, onto, onto cosmic dust particles and the formation of small particles called aminoketines. Amino ketenes. These aminoketines would spontaneously leak un, link up to form a very simple poly, po, Excuse me, po, peptide called polyglycine. By skipping the formation of amino acids, reactions could proceed spontaneously without needing energy from the environment. And to test their claim, the researchers experimentally simulated the conditions found in molecular clouds. This is so cool. Inside a ultra ultra high vacuum chamber, they mimicked the icy surface of cosmic dust particles by depositing carbon monoxide and ammonia onto substrate plates chilled to minus 260 degrees, excuse me, to minus 263 degrees Celsius. They then deposited carbon atoms on top of this ice layer to simulate their condensation inside molecular clouds. Chemical analyses confirmed that the vacuum stimulation had indeed produced various forms of polyglycines up to chains 10 or 11 subunits long. The researchers hypothesized that billions of years ago, as a cosmic dust stuck together and formed asteroids and comets, simple peptides on the dust could have hitchhiked to Earth in meteorites and other impactors. They might have done the same on countless other worlds, too. The delivery of peptides to Earth and other planets certainly would provide a head start to forming life. Daniel Glavin, an astrobiologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, But I think there's a large jump to go from interstellar interstellar ice dust chemistry to life on Earth. First, the peptides would have to endure the perils of their journey through the universe, from radiation to water exposure inside asteroids, both of which can fragment the molecules. And then they'd have to survive the impact of hitting a planet. And even if they made it through all that, they would still have to go through a lot of chemical evolution, to get, a large, to get large enough to fold into proteins that are useful for biological chemistry, Glavin said. Is there evidence that this has happened? Astrobiologists have discovered many small molecules, including amino acids, inside meteorites and one study from 2002 discovered that two meteorites held extremely small, simple peptides made from two amino acids. But researchers have yet to discover other convincing evidence for the presence of such peptides and proteins in meteorites or samples returned from asteroids or comets, Glavin said. It's unclear if the nearly total absence of even relatively small peptides in space rocks means that they don't exist, or if we just haven't detected them yet. But Krasnokutsky's work could still encourage more scientists to really start looking for these more complex molecules in instra- in extraterrestrial materials, Gavin, Glavin said. For example, next year's NASA OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is expected to bring back samples from the asteroid Bennu, and Glavin and his team plan to look for more of these types of molecules. The researchers are now planning to test whether bigger peptides or different types of peptides can form in molecular clouds. Other chemicals and energetic photons in the interstellar medium might be able to trigger the formation of larger and more complex molecules, Krasnokutsky said. Through their unique laboratory window into molecular clouds, they hope to witness peptides getting longer and longer and one day folding like natural origami into beautiful proteins that burst with potential. The end
2: yeah thank you so much for reading this uh it was a really great room and um i know serena was here she could explain it very much better everything uh, she was also fast because she's a biochemist by training and um yeah it was a fascinating talk and uh, the experiments they did were really impressive and yeah it's it's very apparently it's very easy for proteins to occur just, you know, what happens next is not, you know, doesn't have to lead to life or anything. It's just that. And NASA, let me find that one. They actually found first, um, NASA researchers make first discovery of life's building blocks um, in comet. This is uh, by na- on nasa.gov, um, you can share it. Um, And they found, they discovered glycine, a fundamental building block of life in samples of comet Wild 2 and that was returned by NASA's Stardust spacecraft. Glycine is an amino acid used by living organisms to make proteins. And this is the first time an amino acid has been found in a comet. And this was in 2009, which then sparked basically this, uh, these experiments uh, here is the, the website and this part these experiments. And then um, they did the experiments and found that it was way easier than we thought it was. And then we had another guest speaker here who did developed a different imaging of um, Stardust um, and the universe I have to remember right <laughs> now. And you found a way higher um. chemical, like mixes of molecules than we ever expected before that exist in the universe floating out there. Do you remember? Um, They use like a radio frequency um, analysis. Well, I don't wanna say wrong things, I would have to look it up.
1: Gee. Yeah, can you just um, paraphrase again what that research was so I can.
2: It was they used that. So, I I have to look it up before I say stupid things. <laughs> it's recorded. It's okay he used a new a new system mm-hmm. of looking out into space. Um, that they kind of helped develop, and because of that, they he could all of the sudden discover a huge variety of molecules um, sticking together um, like different compounds that we never expected to be floating out there in the universe. Uh, I think the first analysis came back with like hundreds um, of new like compositions that they never expected in the universe. Do you remember that? It was in the very beginning, I think.
1: Oh, I'm yeah. blending a a lot of them together i I could do a you know like a mad scroll down our profiles <laughs> but i don't i'm i'm just I'm just thinking of of you know the magnitude of it well the size of these particles that we're discussing you know the magnitude of of um, the effect is not small but Someone must be laughing somewhere. You know, they know. Maybe they know how they got here. And here we're, you know, making all these proposals to the mechanisms, and and somewhere, you know, there must be a kind of a system that that just has the answer, and and is waiting for us to find it out. Sorry, that doesn't answer your question. <laughs> I don't. I don't exactly remember that because I'm I I blending of all this astrobiology talks into one place
2: yeah it's yeah we we had one about water so uh, we had um, that was dr Salamat he was an amazing speaker we he made different types of waters that they were discovered yet like under different pressures and temperatures with different that, so, so that was um, one of them, um, but he, he is actually interested. So he got funding for this, for the the different planets uh, on the universe type of research, but he is also very interested in using water as a superconductor and then um, published about that too, which is kind of interesting that... Out of pure curiosity something really cool that um that can be you know interesting for our current technology emerges because we talked i think a lot many times with different guest speakers how you know it's important to just focus on curiosity not doing research just for purpose but also have this pure curiosity and this was pure curiosity, I think, that led to um, this
1: really interesting. Katarina, Someone, yeah, you... we have a very special guest who's oh, just arrived. So, hi, Rush, how are you? <laughs> Welcome.
3: Hi, hello. Hi.
1: I'm smiling too, it's great. <laughs> we held it down. <laughs> yeah. We saved you space. We were
3: chatting
2: for what? because I think we, make. I don't know, we mixed up one hour maybe. Do you, yeah, you so I, I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, I, yeah, I'm ready. I, I thought I was uh, early, but apparently I'm uh, like 45 minutes late. Is that so?
2: My, we were talking so to give you. So I introduced, like, I gave some background information about you, and then we were talking about different topics, like we we in space. Okay. <laughs> but, um, so we had the guest I like, origins of life we somehow came to it from let me try to recapulate so we thought maybe we will need your technology one day on earth uh, because we are destroying everything then there was a recent article coming out that um, that on Mars probably the early life destroyed itself because it was eating up all the um, greenhouse gases, but Mars needs it because it's further away from the sun to keep the temperature for living things um, mm-hmm. stable. And then we talked about life, like how life emerges. And we had the guest speaker here a while ago that found that on um, a stardust, they can form proteins really easily uh, and then we went back and forth about those theories, and uh, yeah, so basically a little bit about <laughs> about the universe and life
3: and life and everything.
1: <laughs> so even in your absence, you've inspired a great deal of discussion and interest. So we thank you for that.
2: But yeah, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't take away from your talk at all uh because we just went around the universe and you know keeping your curiosity for your work
0: (laughs) up yeah good
2: so if it's okay usually victoria asks like a couple of interview questions first and then Mm -hmm. and then we can talk about your research if that's okay with you it's It's
3: fine. fine. fine yes
1: Welcome, thank you for coming.
3: No, thank you also for invitation.
1: All right, well, thank you very much and welcome. We're so happy to see you. So um, Science Society is really about people exploring knowledge together, and it's we'd love to get our, our listeners together with, with information and, and also with the people who are driving the development and discovery of that information, meaning you. And we when we learn about each other then it can help deepen our understanding about what we are communicating and so to deepen our understanding about you as the guest then what I'd like to ask you is if you can think through your lifetime and in childhood or adulthood and and try to uh, locate what the entry point might have been for you to feel a pull toward an interest in science
3: well uh... It's a, it's a retrospective question. So, <laughs> um, um, only yeah.
1: as far as you would like to introspect.
3: Them. No, it's fine. Uh, let me just no take some sound off my phone. and um, No, uh, I never had too much doubt, I have to say. It was not something that was clear that uh, I want to do science or I want to, to, to be more on science, but it was more by elimination. So uh, I always felt attracted. Um, more on the mathematics and physics side. Uh, And it was always very natural. Uh, Already in um, high school to to have elective courses more on the engineering side. And physics was really my passion uh, always. It's uh, funny for me to think that I didn't like chemistry that much. And what I do now is rather close to chemistry. But, but physics has a very uh, peculiar way of uh, looking at uh, the universe, of looking at the world. Uh, I might uh, sound a bit arrogant saying that. But um, yeah, physics is uh, r- rather unique uh, in sciences on the way it looks at the universe. It's not better or worse. It's just its own way. Um, and I always felt very attracted with, by, by it, uh, since I remember. Then, uh, as uh, I advanced on the studies, it was this I was telling by elimination, choosing topics that I like more. I start by uh, liking everything and then finding out, oh, finally this I don't like that much. And then, okay, this plasma physics I'm doing, it was the survival of this elimination process. To to tell you, uh, well, something on the side, I studied uh, music for a while, and at uh, the moment of joining university, uh, I was not sure if I could get a place in the university. So, the Portuguese system, we have a limited number of places at university, and I was thinking, oh, I I don't know if my grades are high enough to, to join the physics um, graduation, and then I thought, uh, if I don't, enter i will do my career as musician i would not have been a very good musician but that was my state of mind at that moment
1: thank you for that that sidebar how many of our guest speakers also uh, began their studies in music and you know isn't maybe i'm hoping that you still pursue music as something in your life of course if you want to but um yeah, also interesting to hear about um, your process of elimination and, and to, to find yourself uh, in the work that you're in now. So can you please take us from um, the point of your studies, and um, maybe lead us along a journey to to the research that you're going to present today, how you got from there to here?
3: Uh, yeah, so for first uh, this, this music is really a bit uh, uh, puzzling for me. Uh, I make the same observation as you make, uh, that uh, the percentage of people uh, that uh, study music and are on science is, for me, uh, strangely high. I don't know the reason, but there is a correlation somewhere that someone will find out one day. I don't know exactly what this correlation is. Uh, then. Uh, to be honest, um, there are things of course we like more uh, and uh, in my case the, um, the fascinating topic was how to uh, translate uh, a microscopic world, so atoms and molecules, to a macroscopic world. So we live in a macroscopic world. I know uh, some of you are also scientists. And uh, so sorry if I say something uh, very basic. But I'm not sure on the background of everybody. Uh, but physicists are very basic people. So we, there is this joke that uh, I study a system with one particle. And if there are two particles, say, oh, you are a chemist. And if there are three particles, you say, oh, a biologist. So for physicists, um, three particles is already a lot. Uh, And, okay, chemists are more practical people. They count in these Avogadro numbers, eh? 10 to the power of 23 particles. For them, this is one. Um, But there is, of course, the need at some point to make this bridge. How do we pass from a description where we count particles with our hands uh, and we try to follow all the particles and so on to a description where, uh, in the end, we abstract this internal structure to arrive at what we observe on life, on our, our everyday life. So as a simple example, if you, uh, if you have whatever, uh, sorry for the boring, boring example, if you have a metal rod at a certain temperature, you measure the temperature and it is a number that we know. But of course the microscopic configuration of the atoms and molecules that are in this bar are always different and are but it's not even countable so let me use the word infinite there are infinite configurations uh, that give the same macroscopic state which is a bar at a certain temperature and this was fascinating for me to to try to understand how we go from this microscopic world to the macroscopic world oh sorry i i i'm really sorry i need to open the door of my house just with 5 seconds
1: Go let those particles in.
3: I'm really sorry. Oh, we sorry. love that. It's just real life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was, yeah, uh, yeah I, I left the key inside the door. So well, now you're <laughs> My saying. wife could I could not, I could not no, enter.
1: We have dogs barking and children
3: screaming. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I was I was just saying this this was what uh, fascinated me most uh, as a topic, and then also of course we uh, we have these uh, things that we don't control, and sometimes we have very inspiring teachers, and uh, maybe we like more the teacher than the topic, but this is also has an influence on our path. Eh? and that was on the process of elimination between uh, uh, physics that I did not really enjoy because I went with a certain expectation, uh, if I can use the word, of a certain beauty uh, of the theory and finally I didn't, when I studied it I found, oh, finally this is not that elegant, this type of uh, subjective things and this this effect of having very inspiring teachers on some topics yeah this was also very important
1: okay well thank you not boring at all all the you know we're science people all the details are fantastic and um really again about your comment about music it's it's just relationships and communicating and you know it's just dealing with different media in my mind anyway so um, now I would like to just hand the mic over to you so you can go into your talk. We're really, we're really, um, ready for hearing it. And if you would like to save your Q&A till the end, that's up to you. And if you'd like questions to drive your talk along, then we are here to moderate that for you. And also often people, I uh, guess, will put questions in the chat and we are here to read those for you. So. Uh, unless you have any other questions uh, the mic is yours thank you
3: okay thank you very much so yeah let's do it the uh, easy way so uh, i will start uh, and uh, yeah, feel free to interrupt at any time uh, just because you have a question or uh, just because it's too too detailed or too less detailed so uh, you can feel free to guide me as well because i of course have my, my way of presenting but uh it's not maybe not necessarily what interests you the most so feel free to guide me a bit and i will try to adjust on the on the fly also if i get too long uh, tell me that which sh- i should stop don't 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 be afraid of the saying that okay so let me um this was motivated yeah, by this uh, article that you have seen so the title is there plasma for in situ resource utilization on mars fuels, life support, and agriculture. Uh, The first thing I I have to to mention, of course, my collaborators, Um, they co-signed the paper. There are many other collaborators, but at least those who co-signed the paper I have to mention. So Tiago Silva and Nuno my colleagues in Lisbon, Uh, Florian Peters, Michalis Sampas, and Richard van der Sanden from the Dutch Institute for Fundamental Energy Research at the Netherlands. And uh, Olivier Gaetella from um, Laboratoire de Physique des Plasmas in Ecole uh, Polytechnique in France. Uh, of course, nobody does uh, uh, things alone, really alone, and uh, we are working together on this for for a while. So going to Mars is, uh, yeah, it's I think a bit part of the imaginary of uh, everybody uh, nowadays. Um, it's uh, many books, uh, science fiction movies, uh, and actual missions of exploration to Mars. So NASA has this Mars 2020 uh, Perseverance rover uh, that landed actually 2021. The European Space Agency has ExoMars, started in 2016, I think. Now it's a bit postponed because the situation in the world, uh, in Eastern Europe, is not brilliant. And... Uh, So they were depending on the Russian rockets, so it's a bit postponed. Uh, SpaceX keeps thinking about settlement on Mars and sending humans uh, 2029 or so. We don't know, but, uh, well, they are sinking on it. So a lot of activity around Mars uh, and really excites our imagination. So, but going to Mars is, of course, not easy. Um, I will not describe all the uh, difficulties, but it's far away. So depending on the position of Heard and Mars can be from 50 to 400 million kilometers. The other thing is that um, uh, to have a good trajectory for a spaceship to fly to Mars, uh, the positions of Heard and Mars have to be uh, well aligned in the proper way. And this happens only once every two years, more or less. So if we fail, we have to wait another two years to, to have the good window to, to launch. It's a long trip, 180 days uh, with a lot of radiation in the middle. Uh, if we land there, we may have to stay there for one year before we try to return. If we lose this window of opportunity to launch, because when we arrive, then the configuration is not good. Uh, and so, yeah, all the logistics is very complicated. I think carrying water air to breathe, fuel, uh, food, everything is very complex. Um, So in this context, of course, that everything that we can uh, produce or avoid produce there on Mars or avoid carrying with us on the spaceship is very, very, very important. And hence this notion of in situ resource utilization. I think the name speaks by itself. Uh, but this means yeah, harnessing the resources on the exploration site um, instead of carrying them from Earth or use them to produce something there on the exploration site. So main things uh, create a breathable environment, so producing oxygen and uh, producing fuels so that we can uh, get back home. So I used to say, uh, let's make a, a gas station on Mars so that we can make our life easier. Um, So for this we thought that uh, we could take advantage of the conditions on Mars. So what are these conditions? Essentially the atmospheric composition. So Mars has an atmosphere of carbon dioxide, so CO2, it's about 96% is CO2, with a bit of nitrogen, 2%, and a bit of argon, another 2%. So the resource, the main resource we are interested in is the oxygen that is in the carbon dioxide. So it's CO2, so we want to extract O2. So for that, of course, we need to decompose the CO2 molecule, so to break CO2. And uh, we propose to use plasmas to to do this, to decompose the CO2. So I will go... uh, in a moment, to why plasmas are interesting, so briefly to what are plasmas and then why we think they can uh, be useful. But just before that, so the the big scheme is then that we take uh, energy from sun or wind, uh, like renewables on Earth but on Mars, and we use this energy to break the CO2 molecule, then the O2 we can use directly for life support, uh, and the CO that uh, remains can be used as part of a propellant mixture. O2 can also be part of a propellant mixture. So liquid oxygen is a rocket propellant. We can also sink in mixing with hydrogen. So it's another path. And to create hydrocarbon fuels like those we use on Hertha, variants of gasoline or so But for that, we need hydrogen. So that's another, another, another issue. So, thinking a bit further uh, on this generic scheme, so we already pick O2 from CO2, but we still have N2 nitrogen in the atmosphere. So once we separate oxygen and we, if we pick mix the oxygen with nitrogen, we create uh, nitric oxides, which are the base for uh, nitrogen-based fertilizer. So hence this idea to one day, do agriculture on Mars, uh, and we have naturally there uh, fertilizers. The carbon that is on CO2, so the C carbon, is also uh, important as a fertilizer, but it's also a material that can be used to build a carbon structure, so a building material. Uh, and we can also start thinking on synthesizing, uh, synthesizing sorry, organic molecules and other things. So this is more far-fetched, but just to, to point out that just on the atmosphere of Mars, we have the oxygen, we have the carbon monoxide that is good for fuels, we have the nitrogen that mixed with oxygen, is good for fertilizers, and we can maybe even use carbon itself. So this looks nice, but is this possible or is this mission impossible? It's difficult. The first step is already very difficult because CO2 is a very, very hard molecule to break. It's very stable, so we need to put a lot of energy to break this molecule. And also when we break it, it likes to be a molecule. So it tends to recombine back So the CO and O to form back CO2 again. Uh, we uh, think that by using our plasmas, we can uh, uh, take advantage uh, of this. So the difficult, very difficult parts of the process are this decomposition, but also the separation, because even if we decompose CO2, we will find ourselves with a mixture of uh, our oxygen that we are interested in, but it will be mixed with carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide and uh, other species, and imagine that we want to breathe this oxygen. Of course, we don't want to have any trace of carbon monoxide in our breathing mixture. So we need to separate in a very pure way this oxygen. So the two big challenges first decompose and then decompose CO2 and then separate the oxygen that uh, uh, we break from, from the molecule. So so far, so good, I, I hope. Okay, so uh, then, uh, just uh, uh, what, what is plasma? So in case you you have some training or just curiosity and googled on the plasma, you have read it's the fourth state of matter. So this goes as in elementary school, and so we we start with solids, well, cube of ice if we are thinking on water. Then we put energy into our system, so we heat the system and we break some of the the bonds and our solid becomes a liquid and if we put more energy into our system if we continue to heat after a while all our molecules are separated and we go from liquid to vapor or to gas and the question is what happens if we still put more energy into the system so if we continue to heat from a gas And the answer is that a certain time, at a certain moment, we have enough energy to remove some of the electrons from the nuclei. So we have uh, now an ionized gas. So we have some molecules like in the gas that are not ionized and we have some uh, ions and some free electrons. And of course, these charged particles, the ions and the free electrons, can be easily accelerated by electric fields. And that's what we are going to do um, to use plasma technology uh, to produce oxygen on Mars really. So the textbook definition of plasma is this one it's an ionized gas what I explained and then I did not explain but okay we also claim it's a quasi-neutral system so about the same uh, negative charge and positive charge and the uh, Something that sounds a bit exotic for you, it's that it exhibits a collective behavior. So I just put this out of completeness, uh, the full definition of plasma. So this exhibits a collective behavior. It was also very funny on the description in the textbooks from the Soviet Union, but that's another another lecture, not, not this one. Uh, so plasmas are, it looks maybe a bit, uh, a bit uh, unusual, what I have said but in fact 99% of the visible matter of the universe is in the state of plasma. It happens we live in a place where plasma is not so common, so we, uh, we don't have uh, that much intuition, but still we are familiar with plasma. So the stars are plasma, the nebula in the sky are plasma, the solar wind is plasma, but also the aurora or the northern lines are plasma, and more common to us, so lightning or fire, are also plasmas. So, we have this notion, we know what plasma is, or at least we know some examples of what plasmas are. Uh, and again, it's about 99% of the visible matter of the universe, so it's everywhere. So, back to our CO2. So, how then can use the plasmas to decompose CO2? So, I mentioned that we have these free electrons that are not attached bound to any nuclei um, so if we have an electric field that can accelerate these electrons they gain energy very fast so their mass is very small so they will be accelerated the ions are heavy they will not accelerate that much but the electrons yes they can go very fast so if you can imagine easily that the electron goes really fast bullet like and hits a co2 molecule So what happens? Well it has a good chance of breaking the CO2 molecule. So it just hits very fast the CO2 molecule and breaks it. It can also happen that instead of breaking the molecule it just transfers enough energy to make the molecule to vibrate. Uh, This looks bad at the first time because we want to decompose CO2 but in the end we can use this uh, energy that is then stored in the vibration of the molecule uh, to what I say to make the molecule sing. So music is again uh, behind us. So it's this image of a singer that uh, when he's singing in the correct frequency can break the crystal glass. So that's a resonance mechanism. It's not exactly what we have here, but the image is probably good. So you see, imagine the molecule that is vibrating and somehow we manage to increase the amplitude of vibration and increase it until the molecules break. So our electrons from the plasma can decompose directly in a fast collision or in the slower collision, put the molecule to vibrate, but maybe we can then, again, make the molecules sink uh, and break them anyway. So we have what we call a selective use uh, of, of energy. Uh, So our idea was precisely this, that we could use the plasmas, to these fast electrons, to decompose the molecule. So our first work is from uh, uh, 2017, it's a more uh, theoretical work and some numerical simulation, where we were uh, arguing that uh, Mars has very good conditions uh, for this decomposition by plasma first, again, because most of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide, then because the nitrogen and argon that are there in the atmosphere would play in favor of plasma, and then compared with Earth, um, Mars has a lower pressure, about 150 times smaller than on Earth, and that would be good, and it also has a lower temperature than on Earth, Uh, so average temperature is about uh, minus 50 Celsius, I think this is about minus 60 Fahrenheit um, and so this lower temperature would also be good for the for. plasma. So this was our first let's say conjecture supported by our uh, theoretical study and numerical simulations and then uh, uh, on a subsequent word, work that was published already in 2021 together with our French and Dutch colleagues we uh, we have uh, demonstrated experimentally these ideas. Um, so now my, my question for you, so why it's I, I do it usually if I have a, a screen this is just how you can imagine this who wants to be billionaire screen so how can the pressure help so why this 150 times lower pressure is good and the options are because we need many molecules to make it efficient, because we need very few molecules, because we don't, we need something in the middle, neither too many nor too few, or finally it doesn't matter. So I cannot see you raising hands, but I give you just a few moments to think about it. And the correct answer is that uh, we don't want too many molecules nor too few. Because if we have a lot of molecules, meaning a high pressure, when our electrons try to accelerate, they immediately collide. So they lose their energy. And then they try to accelerate and they collide. So it's like you are in a metro in a rush hour and you want to run. You cannot because you are always colliding with someone that is very close. So you cannot gain speed because you are always colliding. So high pressure, meaning too many molecules, is not good. But too few molecules, meaning a too low pressure, is also not good. Because if you are in an empty station, of course you can run very fast. But if your life depends on finding someone else, you will only find one person from time to time. So we want to decompose CO2, so we need these collisions. So we need to have enough molecules to have these collisions. So we need to have the good pressure, not too high, not too low, and Mars is precisely the pressure that is required for efficient plasma operation. So it's almost magic, um, but this is the case. So in this was what we were uh, demonstrating in this this first this first work. Also for the temperature. So how can the temperature help? So temperature is smaller than on Hertz. So my options again, uh, quiz. Um, because with low temperature helps the molecules sink. So if they are vibrating, it's easier to make them vibrate even more, or maybe uh, we hinder the back reaction. So the reactions that pick CO and O and give back CO2 that we don't want will be slower, or do we have more time to separate the oxygen from this mixture or all of the options. And the correct answer is all of the options. So the low temperature, is actually good for all these reasons. So if we put the molecule to vibrate it is easier to make it sing. it will slow down all the chemistry so we have more time for separation and the molecules will not recombine uh, that easily. Uh, so at this point then we we have done this experimental study where we have shown that the presence of argon and nitrogen was favorable, not too much, but helped a little bit more on the decomposition of CO2. And another interesting uh, result was that uh, if instead of recreating the conditions on Mars, so this, uh, in particular, this lower temperature, the pressure we always need to recreate to study on Earth what happens on Mars, uh, the results are very close to operating at uh, Earth temperature. So it helps a little bit, but uh, nothing too special so we can make our life easier and, uh, and study this, the system at room temperature on Earth. And so finally we arrive at this, uh, this paper uh, that you have seen and uh, uh, almost in the beginning of the, the lecture I said okay we have two critical steps of decomposing CO2 and separating the oxygen. And this is now the, the next step, so we were focusing first just on the decomposition of CO2 and now we um, we are bringing in fact uh, plasmas together with a separation membrane and coupling them to solve the decomposition and separation problems at the same time. So it's not that first we decompose and then we separate, it's that we do everything at once, so we are thinking on a design where our plasma uh, is in contact with the separation membrane and we have a true synergy. So the plasma is better because the membrane is there and the membrane is better because the plasma is there. Uh, and the bottom line is that uh, if uh, with the membrane, as soon as we start dissociating the CO2, decomposing it, we start extracting the oxygen, then the oxygen is no longer there to form back O2, CO2. So that's fine. And also the plasma will affect the membrane in the simpler way, it will just heat the membrane. It will transfer its energy and these membranes need a bit of heating to operate properly. So we don't need to spend energy um, in heating this membrane. So uh, I'm arriving to the end, but I want to compare a little bit uh, what we are thinking and proposing with the experiment that is already running on Mars, so NASA has this machine MOXIE, the Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, which is uh, of course an uh, incredible uh, achievement, a very beautiful machine uh, that works on a completely different, not com- well, well very different um, principle and if I can put it uh, in a simple way maybe it's a bit simplistic, but uh, not too, too much, is that uh, uh, the people in NASA, they use uh, technology that exists on Earth. So what they needed to do first on Mars is to sort of recreate the conditions on Earth. So compress the thin atmosphere and heat the atmosphere so that we recreate the conditions for operation on Earth. And we need to eat in fact more than uh, room temperature on Earth because even on Earth this technology requires heating. So most of the power that is uh, used in MOX this NASA experiment is used for compression of the atmosphere and heating the system. Then carbon dioxide arrives at the uh, well, I use the big words of this solid oxide electrolysis cell, doesn't matter, so this separation stage and with this strong compression and heating and the expensive catalysts uh, on the surface we decompose the oxygen that is then transported across the membrane. So very good points, it's a very robust technology, it's already on Mars and but uh, not so good points. Uh, it has a very low energy efficiency and it uses uh, uh, scarce and expensive rare earth metals which makes uh, scalability difficult. Of course people on uh, uh, on the MOXIE project are already working on trying to work it at not so strong conditions, not so close on earth, uh, solving these problems of scalability and so on, uh, but th- this is more or less the, the bottom line. So for our plasma technology, we it's the opposite, more or less. So we don't want to recreate the conditions on Earth. Uh, it's quite the opposite. Maybe if we want to operate on Earth, we need to recreate the conditions on Mars. So we directly take advantage of the conditions on Mars. This is one of the things that I like with this uh, plasma, is that we really take advantage of uh, conditions on Mars. So we, we achieved... Uh, so dissociation of uh, carbon dioxide of the order of 30-40%, uh, which is quite good already. Uh, plasmas are scalable and adequate for intermittent operation. So there is no problem in starting or stopping operation when there is a sun or when weather not. It's also very versatile. So the same device that we can use to separate oxygen uh, we can use them to produce fertilizers, just changing the, the feed gas. Uh, but of course, technology does not exist first. Uh, this product separation is still challenging, so a lot of work is still to be done. Uh, but our expectation, uh, if the numbers add up properly, and for now we have no reason to believe they do not add up properly, is that in the end we can have uh, a production of oxygen that is really very competitive with uh, the NASA experiment uh, that, in fact, we can produce uh, more or the same amount of oxygen per hour, but with a smaller and a lighter device. And as you can imagine, every gram that we spare on a machine that goes to Mars, every cubic centimeter is very, very important. So uh, I, I can put a number, but uh, this is, well, what is, in our estimation how, now who knows what will be in the end, maybe we will be worse than Moxie but our expectation is the, that we can be a factor of 6, 7 uh, better uh, in the oxygen produced per kilogram of instrumentation that uh, that we send to Mars. Um, and this is more or less what I wanted to, to share with you, um, not entering too much in detail. So we confirmed in fact with our study that Mars has really very good natural conditions f- to use plasmas uh, to extract these resources from the atmosphere and this goes both on these very fast electrons that decompose directly and also by this song of the molecules will vibrate and uh, increase their vibration. Uh, We see a positive effect of the constitution of the atmosphere. So nitrogen and argon, it's not very significant, but they don't bother at all. And this can uh, make a very light and compact reactor, uh, very competitive with what exists now. Um, and to put big words, let's say that this can be a beginning of a, a new technology, very versatile, this coupling of plasma with membranes that can be used for life support fuels, agriculture on Mars, but also for other uh, applications on Earth. And just before I finish, I made the unforgettable, unforgivable, sorry, mistake of um, not mentioning uh Carmen uh, Garcia from the MIT who also uh, signed the paper with us Uh, and that's that's it thank you
2: well thank you so much for explaining it so comprehensively to us um you know the physics background and um yeah the the technology that was really wonderful thank you so much and it's so interesting that the system is so versatile um, because I don't know, don't you think we tend to forget things, <laughs> important things, and then we are there and there's no way back. <laughs> so is it, is this first, like, is the system, like what is the variety of applications that you could use that mm. could maybe, um? you know, like, um, make up for our mistakes of planning?
3: Hmm. Yeah, so, um, let, let me answer first in a more generic way. So, in fact, this type of, of system, yeah, uh, can be used to produce different molecules depending on the, let's say, the atmosphere that you put inside the reactor. So, if you just operate on Mars atmosphere, this is it, huh? we, we go for, Extraction of oxygen, but I was uh, saying for uh, uh, Fertilizer so instead of operating it on Martian atmosphere we Pre-select an atmosphere more earth like so nitrogen and oxygen then we can go for fertilizers if this is if if we have hydrogen uh, so hydrogen maybe we have to carry from Earth and but uh, speculation that it exists uh, under the soil, okay, there is this uh, polar caps, Uh, maybe there is water there, maybe we want to use, maybe not, okay, but anyway, if with hydrogen then the possibilities multiply, because we can mix also hydrogen to produce methane, Uh, there are many different, um, uh, we can go for ammonia, so it's really uh, versatile is the word, um, and it's a bit surprising, maybe, but it's it's the case. So we don't need to really change the the reactor. Maybe we need to change, well, membrane. So the separation part or how we separate may be different, but the reactor itself can be uh, exactly the same. Um, which is, I think, a, a major a major asset of this of this technology, indeed. Uh, if I read your mind correctly, so you are thinking uh, that okay, if we are in a sort of catastrophic situation, maybe we can then take, use this versatility in our advantage so that we can tune and operate and uh, somehow find a way out. Uh, yeah, I like, I like that view, in fact.
2: Yeah, thank you. And thank you for that answer. Um, and so how much... How much energy do we need, and like, how long is the process to have, let's say, enough oxygen for mm-hmm. to live on, or for crops to grow? Like, we probably need to have, in, like, for how much time do we need to bring stuff, and then does it kick in, like, after two months that we have enough, or what? What would be the time?
3: Yeah. So um, the 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 system that we have now, of course, well, firstly, it's not yet ready. Eh? So it's we are, we are working on it. But um, the the numbers that that we have um, uh, represent a production. I can put a number. It's uh, like fifteen grams of oxygen per hour, and uh, human needs about. Uh, one kilogram per day. Um, so yeah, if you if you put uh, fifteen on uh, twenty four hours, you see we are with this device we have. Um, well, it's not twenty four hours that the issue is that uh, we we don't have enough sun to to power the system. But okay, let's let's simplify we will have one third of the day. It's less, it's it's of course less because we have less hours. But this is, um, so a direct answer is that we we spend about uh, 300 watt for this machine. Uh, We can operate it at lower power, at the power that we need to ignite a a lamp. Uh, It can be very low power. So uh, these old lamps uh, are, yeah, 100 watts, huh? so 300 is not that much. So, of course, if you use now lead or some other, it's it's much less power. But if you think on the lamps that you had in a grandparent's house, it's 100 watts, something like that. So, to operate at 300 watts is not nothing special. And with it, uh, we could have uh, um, enough oxygen. Let's say, if we leave it the full day with this device, a person would breathe for a few hours Uh, but this is a prototype so if we scale up and we think on something a little bit bigger we see that we are uh, in the scale uh, of producing oxygen for breathing relatively quickly. For uh, production of fuels we are about a factor of 100 off so we need either to have 100 devices on Mars or to come up with a more efficient or a bigger device or something like that. Uh, And to be honest, for uh, fertilizers, I I don't know. Uh, I still uh, uh, need to interact with the colleagues from agriculture that I I did not. I just know the basics, but I didn't uh, estimate how much can we produce uh, yet because we are still focusing on the CO2 decomposition itself.
1: If thank you for that answer, so if this were used for human breathing, um, what is happening to the exhale and mm-hmm. is that CO2 reused, or what about the other gases that make up the air that we, you know, nitrogens and things?
3: Yeah, yeah, so that's a, that's a good that's a good question, of course. Um yeah, because, well, we, we breathe back CO2, eh? so uh, obviously. So we start having, uh, if we are indoors, so we need, um, we need a constant supply. So if, we, if you think um, some purification or recycling of uh, indoors atmosphere uh, already exists, so if we are in a submarine or if you are in the International Space Station uh, people breathe uh, Yeah, they consume oxygen and they uh, put CO2 back in the atmosphere in the closed atmosphere huh? and then we need to well recirculate, circulate re-decompose CO2 and so on but the system always has loss so we need uh, to feed with uh, oxygen again and on mars it would be something similar so this system that we are imagining would provide this initial supply of oxygen so that we could breathe in a closed room but it also provide it would also provide the extra oxygen that we need to refill or to compensate uh, for the losses for these breathing processes that you are uh, thinking of
2: Yeah, thank you for uh, that answer. Um, and um, so, how much? Yeah, I keep going back to the question. But um, so you you say that it would would it be easy to scale up? Uh, I'm sorry, I had the phone call. Could you hear
0: me? <laughs>
2: uh, no problem. No problem. <laughs> so. Um, in order to scale up the system uh, to produce, let's say, for colonization or so on Mars, do we, could we take resources from Mars to build these, um, this technology also? Like is on Mars, um, yeah, can we mine Mars also at some point so we don't need to? bring everything is that also part of the plan or or do we need to bring everything long term
3: uh well it, it's not part of my plan huh? maybe maybe people from uh, space agencies and spacex that are really thinking on uh, colonization they they have it a bit more precise so i'm focusing on my small on my smaller problem um but, uh, as a principle, yes, you can you can mine Mars, of course, and uh, I don't know what you can produce from the technology uh, um, in the sense of building new reactors there and so on. This looks to me uh, difficult, and uh, so I think we need to, to carry from her a lot. This question that we can use the carbon to to create structures is also interesting, but again, it's not enough to to, to scale up. So I, I think that uh, on at least on a first stage, uh, it's necessary to bring from here to to scale. So. Uh, the stupid scaling, but, uh, well, stupid in the sense, uh, very, no no brain on it, but maybe in the end it's uh, the way to go, is just to replicate the machine. So if you have one machine that operates, you replicate and put more, uh, and then you have uh, more and more power, more and more uh, um, output uh, of whatever, gas, uh, gasoline, or any propellant, or the oxygen, or the fertilizers, Uh, and then you are a bit ready to go. Um, I don't really see uh, easily that we could uh, have everything to produce the the material, well all new reactors uh, on Mars, Uh, maybe I'm mistaken but right now I don't see it but mining Mars and using uh, then other type of resources to do other things so not to do this but to do other things that's uh, uh, for sure something that uh, for a true colonization should be considered yeah. but uh, yeah again i confess i have not made a, a, a colonization plan how to build a infrastructure <laughs> there <laughs>
1: I think that's the first thing we think of, you know, like I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of what else you know? can we, can we start cultivating um, plankton to assist with the oxygen production, for example?
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I think we just keep, we just, it's like an, a mind explosion. Uh, what do we need and what can assist so that, mm-hmm. you know, in the scaling, you have other things producing, yeah. they have their requirements too.
3: Now, on these things that I, uh, I, I have just thought on the air, huh? I, they can be very stupid, but things that I want to sit down for 10 minutes and uh, then maybe if they survive 10 minutes, then I sit down for a few hours. And then if they survive, I sit down for a few days. It would be to have a sort of... Um, a system of gas stations spread along the the solar system, because uh, many different planets have many different atmospheres and different gases that we can use. So we could try to to devise, okay, on Mars we have CO2 that we decompose in this way and we produce these fuels, but other planets have what we miss on Mars, like the hydrogen or... They also have CO2, so we could use exactly the same on Mars as on another place. And so start spreading fuel stations a bit along the solar system. So on this that you are think, saying that, uh, yeah, we start immediately thinking in things that are very far in the future. This is what I'd like to, to evaluate a little bit better. Maybe I conclude that it's, it's pointless, but it's what a bit on my mind for a, a further thought. Um.
2: And then you mentioned that maybe um, the efficiency could be um, improved by using new nanomaterials. Mm. And you know, you mentioned also three types of um, permeable membranes. So, which which type would be able to be improved by nanomaterials, and which ones would you use? If that's okay to ask, I don't know. Maybe it's secret.
3: No, it's fine. It's fine. Um. So the the nanomaterials would be would be um, uh, helping to enhance even more the CO two dissociation. So um, in our system so the the plasma so let, let me go back a, a, a little bit so if we if we i i describe this moxie system yeah where you put the energy in compressing heating and co2 arrives at the membrane but then because it's compressed and it's heated and you have these catalyzers on the surface the molecule breaks on the surface so very energy expensive but then It's transported to the other side. So in our plasma, we spend the energy in dissociating the plasma. So what arrives to the membrane is already dissociated uh, carbon dioxide. So we have already oxygen arriving at the membrane, which is then transported. So that's the main difference. In In the Moxis system, CO2 arrives to the membrane, and then we need to spend the energy there to break it in the plasma, we spend the energy before and the oxygen arrives at the membrane. So we can still use these nanomaterials on the membrane to further decompose CO2 that arrives. So to play this role of the catalyzers of the MOXI system. So it's possible to still increase uh, the yield of oxygen on our membrane. Maybe necessary, maybe not probably not necessary but maybe uh, efficiency will be uh, a bit a bit higher Um, and then yeah as you said uh, there are different type of uh, membranes Uh, we believe uh, right now although uh, different teams are exploring different possibilities that we should use uh, what is this uh, solid uh, oxide electrolysis um, Cell, so similar to the MOXI. So it's a membrane uh, that works uh, on a potential difference. So the other membrane that is uh, realistic to use, uh, it works on a, a partial pressure difference. So if you have more oxygen on one side of the membrane and less oxygen on the other side, the oxygen will diffuse from the high-pressure side to the low-pressure side. Uh, It looks looks okay if we say it like that, but the point is that you need to to vacuum on the other side, so that the permeation uh, takes place efficiently. Maybe possible, um, but it seems that uh, it will be more complicated. It will require more power, and more power means more weight, more kilograms, and everything will be a bit bigger and a bit uh, heavier. So, we are more keen for the moment on these membranes where we drive the flow of oxygen through this uh, potential difference. Because what is transported, sorry if I enter too technical detail, but <laughs> I will just say it. So, the, what is transported is not the oxygen atom, it's an oxygen ion. So, if you have a potential difference, you can drive it to to the other side. So, the oxygen atom, in this case, arrives at the membrane, then it needs to capture an electron that can be supplied by the plasma itself or by some current, and then we have the ion that is transported. In this way, you can transport oxygen even uh, against the, the, the partial pressure because it's driven by the potential difference. Uh, and this is what we believe it's the better configuration, because we need already a potential difference to ignite the plasma. So just to create the plasma, we need the power, and eh? we need to to have uh, electrodes or whatever, uh, microwaves, doesn't matter, the, the, the system, we, but we need to have already uh, a potential difference to create the plasma. So why not to use the same to drive the the... The ion transport along the membrane. So, yes, different membranes can be used. We are exploring uh, the two uh, main types of membranes this that is just partial pressure, and another one that is driven by um, uh, this potential difference. We believe the second is probably better, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, that's
2: very interesting. Before I ask more questions, Victoria and Joyce, do you want to ask more,
1: que- like some questions? Please keep asking. This is really fun. <laughs> that was terrifying. Though. I just comment when you were talking about the differential of um, oxygen concentration. And I was just thinking, you make all this lovely oxygen and then it diffuses?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Scary. Okay, go ahead.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So
2: you know back to the question we had before we started um if we can one day use this on earth but you said you were actually using the characteristics of the mars conditions mm. and that's why this works so well but could we change it to adapt it to your and maybe one day you know we are Killing the ocean, and that's where most oxygen gets produced. Um, and we are killing the ocean very quickly. Um, would that be a possibility? Maybe even, you know, recreate (laughs) ocean oxygen (laughs) somehow.
3: Yeah. So, uh, so this this idea actually appears. Because we were working on a a similar system, so trying to to start from carbon dioxide and uh, instead of thinking carbon dioxide is a problem, maybe carbon dioxide is a resource that we can use to make something interesting uh, on Earth. Uh, And then um, listening to a a lecture uh, by someone from NASA about Mars, that was nothing related to oxygen production or whatever, Uh, I just realized, okay, but Mars is carbon dioxide, so maybe what we are studying on Earth could be used somehow uh, to Mars. And then start thinking that, okay, finally, Mars is really great for for plasma. Um, But a long story to say that, yes, we were actually already thinking on application on Earth. Uh, We continue to pursue uh, the studies on Earth. It's more, it's not so much what we are thinking, but maybe it's possible also. It's not so much to to regenerate the the ocean at this moment. We are more thinking on making um, carbon dioxide loop as we have the water cycle that we learned in elementary school. So something like we pick carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, that is annoying us a lot, Uh, We use, of course, renewable energy to do our plasma sink, so to break the molecule, to separate the oxygen and so on. And then with electrolysis from water, we bring the hydrogen and we go for fuels and we burn it again to the atmosphere. So you see a, a, a cycle like the cycle of water. We could do a cycle for carbon dioxide, that in the limit would be neutral, would be completely neutral. So, of course, it's not reducing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but it's not increasing. Um, And uh, my point of view, it would have the advantage that we would still run our cars in gasoline, meaning we don't need a new infrastructure, we don't need a new transport system, we don't need a new technology. Okay, we need a technology to produce the gasoline, so so fuels, liquid fuels, gasoline and variants, are not bad by themselves. They are bad if they are produced from fossil. (laughs) Uh, But if we produce it from CO2 in the air, then it's fine. Uh, And this is more or less the the, the direction we are pursuing a bit. Uh, I don't believe in a magic solution, so one solution that solves all the problems, but I believe in uh, several uh, contributions, several ideas, several um, technologies that all together uh, will help us. Uh, And uh, yes, so we are trying to learn both ways, from Earth what we can take advantage on Mars, but also from our research on Mars what we can use to make life more sustainable on Earth as well, mainly through this this mechanism of recycling CO2, but uh, it's also possible to think on uh, directions in line of what you are suggesting, uh, regenerating the oceans and so on, but um, yeah it's uh, all these are completely complex problems of course uh, but we should face them uh, we should face
2: them yeah that's um, would it because renewable energies have a peak of generating electricity so could it be some sort of battery system also that we kind of you know when we have a lot of renewable energy more than we actually need we would add that process to it and have some sort of you know Battery, like we funnel it into this, and when we don't have too much, like at night, then we can just turn it off and yeah. and use it for other things.
3: Um, yeah, it, it it could, but in principle, it would not be the way to go with this because. Uh, uh, these plasmas I, I mentioned very briefly when when I was presenting that we don't have an issue with starting and stopping operation. So we can do it immediately. So if uh, sun is shining or wind is blowing, we run our thing. If it's not, we shut down. Uh, this is not an issue. And the other thing is that if um, we use this scheme of recycling the CO2 to produce um, liquid fuels directly so hydrocarbons it's already stored so we don't need to store in batteries so we just make um, I don't know the English word uh, okay you have a barrel of gasoline so barrel, gasoline yeah, yeah, is good of yeah yeah that's what I mean that the ah,
2: okay, so that's battery it. Ah, okay so battery that's it so
3: that's it yeah so yeah, you, you exactly store you just keep storing yeah? you keep storing because a barrel of gasoline you can keep for years and huh? the energy is there and it's a lot yeah. it's a lot per cubic centimeter eh? so per liter so
2: how heavy is so. it because ideally you would do it on top of a building and then mm. whenever you don't have energy you transfer the the fuel down and by that elevator we you know there's this engineer from Brazil who was here that mm. says we could um store a lot of energy in high-rise buildings
0: mm. but
2: keeping you know fuel or whatever on top and then bring it down whenever we need electricity. So could is it too heavy? Is it too big for having it on top of a building?
3: <laughs> yeah, well it depends on how much and how fast you you bring it down eh? but <laughs> But mainly, I think a scheme like this, you would not put it on the top of buildings. You just because the another difficulty would be that does not exist on Mars would be the capture of the CO two. So to start the process, you need to to capture CO two um, because okay for our climate we have too much CO two in the atmosphere but in percentage of the gases on the atmosphere is small, otherwise we would be in serious trouble for breathing already. Um, so the idea is to to put uh, some sort of plant or machine or device, whatever, uh, that would work along these lines, close to a source of CO2. So you would go to a factory, to a cement plant, to whatever, expels a lot of CO2 so that the um, the capture process would be easier. Because if we need to separate the few molecules of CO2 that we have around us, then it will be very, 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 very inefficient. So we need to be closer to, to places where CO2 is more readily available. But it's not impossible to, to put it in the top of a building, but uh, in principle, there would be no advantage, uh, or, or no big advantage uh, on it. Um.
2: Uh, yeah, I see. That was
1: but maybe you just haven't found the right differential. You know, like the elevator that you know you need to get from the top of the building down. Mm. So be of the
2: factory too, right? I...
1: <laughs> but that's why it brings us back to this the point again, and there. They could be the plant, like literally the plant producing the CO2. Mm. Um, But I think there's much to be known about their complex life because they are again, well, we were talking about the migrating of the plankton throughout the day and also throughout the year. So that's miles of ocean Mm. um, that they require. so something like a differential that's 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 analogous. Oops, sorry, analogous to <laughs> gravity, analogous to an elevator going up and down. Mm.
3: Yes, yes. Um, no, I, yeah. I don't have uh, too much more to say, uh, except uh, okay. If if you imagine. Uh, how our society is organized now in terms of fuels. So so this transportation of fuels, you can do it uh, by boat or whatever, but you have all these pipelines, all these systems that transfer uh, fuel from one side to the other. So similar similar things can be used because that's also... uh, the same comment if we are using with the same material so its the fuel is the same everything that we know already regarding storage and transport can be used. It's only the really the source, the production uh, that is different and that's the main issue that we are not burning oil or gas or whatever but as long as soon as you have the fuel produced everything that is known already to transport from one place to the other. I'm making now the analogy of your plankton migrating a long distance. Uh, So um, I I don't know exactly for the US, but I guess it should be similar to to Europe. So this goes kilometers and kilometers uh, on pipelines. So uh, this I don't think it would be a major problem to produce in one place and then transport. And make it available on other places.
2: Yeah, you probably can scale it better, right? If you know, the bigger you go, then it's more scalable and cheaper and more efficient and you lose a little bit by transportation, but if we can use the same infrastructure basically Yeah,
3: exactly, exactly. That's it. Yeah.
2: I I think there would be less resistance to switch to this type of technology than making the whole industries basically switching to something completely new. So if you could achieve that, that would be really great because people people could just keep doing what they're doing. That's what they want to do, yeah. right? Nobody wants to change their life significantly. So that would be a huge achievement. So Are you getting funding for the earth type of project or, you know, is it harder to get funding for or interest in, or is it right right now really a great time because oil is so expensive and people like knocking down your doors (laughs) to escape the oil price?
3: Yeah, yeah. No, we we have uh, some funding, but mostly from uh, national projects. So we have not been successful in getting uh, big money from European projects. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, of course, I, 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 it seems I managed to, to make my propaganda, my advertising properly because you, you put it uh, precisely as, uh, as I see it. So that the infrastructure is there. So if we could do it, uh, people would not have this resistance to change and uh, we would be, make a, an important step in this uh, sustainability and having, well, treating a little bit better our planet. But um, uh, my concern or one of my concerns is that um, this looks a bit far from the political uh, speech. So uh, I don't know if this is the first time you are speaking, uh, listening about something along these lines but it's very rare that we see uh, on our politicians or journalists any reference to a scheme like this. So we, we listen to uh, electric cars, we listen uh, hydrogen technology, but something like uh, let's uh, keep operating in the same way just replacing fossils by uh, the fossil f- source for the fuels by renewable, uh, this uh, i i it's very hard that i listen entering the political speech or even the media that's where i am not uh, so optimistic but uh, but yes so we are for now having some funding from our national projects uh, we have of course uh, the same strong network of collaborations uh, abroad uh, but we are lacking uh, let's say big money to 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 make it move faster.
2: Yeah, I don't know, maybe it's Europe. Um, like we had the guest speaker here, she has a company. She's a, the research director from a Chinese company, but they also operate here in the US mm. where they engineer microbes to ferment gas oh. into um, fuel. And they actually fueled a plane and they are scaling it up now um, uh, that did a transatlantic flight with um with with the fuel it was really great it is really great work and i think they got quite a lot of funding from china and here i'm not sure how the company is doing but they are, they want to collaborate also similar idea to get you know to do this fermentation right at the source of factories and farms, mm-hmm. and so on. So I think that would be a really, you know, and it seems like it's not so far fetched to do that. It's not like we we shouldn't have solar panels, but they also have their problems, right? They generate a lot of um, trash that we cannot recycle really well. and um, you know everything has its problems, so we need a lot of different solutions, and not just one thing. Although I like my electric car. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It no, it's also part. It's also part. It's, uh, I agree with you. So uh, we, we need many different things. Uh, we need to what is good in one condition, we do it in in that condition, and uh, we need many different things.
2: Yeah, I mainly like the electric car because it doesn't pollute when I now smell like diesel or, you know, gas without the filter and stuff. It makes, it reminds me of childhood driving from Germany to Portugal three times Mm -hmm. a year and being sick and noxious. (laughs)
0: Like,
2: (laughs) I, I just don't like the pollution in the city from the cars, but yeah um but in general i think people are more open maybe to have like a smooth transition not 100% transition
3: mm. no and thanks for the comment yeah that is uh, that uh, idea from the the chinese company looks looks quite interesting in fact
2: yeah i can share the recording but also the paper with you she she presented here dr liang i have a i just have to find it. it was in the beginning when we started this club it was really impressive the work she did for um screening all the different microorganisms and then uh, engineer you know engineer them in a the way that they do this process more efficiently like just from you know this work was really impressive it was a lot of work sean uh, she at the stage i hope you have still a couple of minutes. Um, maybe Sean has the last question. I don't want, I know it's Friday. You probably want to do something else and continue
1: speaking with us. So he, he, wants, he, he wants to answer questions today, Saturday, and Sunday, because he enjoys this. Right. We <laughs> could actually make that happen if you liked. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Um, uh, is it Gera, is that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I've been preparing breakfast and I've been listening in the background. So the, the system that's currently on Mars on the rover, um, that's not one that you, your, your team designed. It's a different type of technology slightly. That's one question. And number two, your system that you were describing earlier, how many watts per liter of oxygen does it take and how does that compare to the system that's currently on Mars? And I think that should be good enough for Friday.
3: (laughs) Yes, thanks. Yes, no, for sure. Well, I I will be um, glad to to discuss with you anytime you want, but not anytime because now it's uh, 9 in the evening here and I will go for my dinner. But um, answering now the the direct questions. Um, So, yes, it's not not the same system as we have. So, it's... uh, a different different system. Uh, the, we try to compare uh, for the same power uh, that they use, uh, what we can do. Um, and okay, the numbers they give are usually measured in. A, so it's a three hundred watt. Huh? So it's about three hundred watt. So the um, the numbers they give are usually given as grams of oxygen produced per hour. We can convert that in liters, but I have to do the calculation on the side, so I don't have the number uh, at the top of my head. Um, but their number, what they produce, it's uh, 5.5 uh, grams of oxygen per hour. So our estimation that I think it's realistic is that we can have about a factor of three more so like 15 grams of Oxygen per hour, Uh, based on uh, that we have uh, twice that, we have 30 grams of Oxygen per hour, but on the gas phase, so before we actually extract the Oxygen. And then we put, well, we will fail to separate everything, we will just extract half. And then we have this uh, factor of three but if instead a factor of if we instead of extracting half we extract only twenty uh, percent, we would still be uh, a little bit above um, the the machine that is there. So oxygen. So I think we can be pretty safe um, in estimating that we will have at least the same amount of oxygen per hour uh, production of oxygen per hour for the same three hundred watt as Moxie maybe a bit better. Uh, and especially then uh, is this question of weight. So our well we expect that we can then engineer and optimize our system to, to make it smaller and lighter uh, than than Moxie. We will see but uh, that, that's an important an important aspect as well. Thank you. Welcome.
2: Great. Um, well, thank you so much for explaining things in a way that even I could understand and for spending the time here with us. Uh, You're know, always welcome back, as Sean already said. <laughs> and um, yeah, enjoy the rest of your Friday, enjoy your dinner, and um, yeah, I hope we'll one day hear about you know we will follow your research and maybe you come back and and thanks again <laughs>
3: no perfect thank you very much yeah i will try to join from time to time your discussions and um yeah thank you also for uh, uh the invitation it was a pleasure really yeah
2: that that's so, great to hear we want you know the guest speakers to have fun as i, I lately say we don't want to be parasites
0: so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah
1: awesome. thanks so much for your talk and all your work. And thanks, Katerina and Victoria.
2: Yeah, and everyone, thank you for coming and interacting. Um, if you like discussion like this, follow the club, then you get. Um, you can look up um, the schedule. Not all of our rooms, but like I think the next 10 to 11 rooms are listed. Um, So we'll have next week Dr. Hergenrotha who fights off over 300 drug-resistant bacteria with his new approach. Then um, we'll have Dr. Brugic um, talking about programmable self-assembly of emulsion droplets. It's basically very soft, very small robotics (laughs) kind of maybe in the future and um, uh, human specific alleles protecting cognition. Um, uh, so it's basically a genetic predisposition to have good cognition throughout life. And, um, and how one hour in nature decreases amygdala activity and how we know amygdala overactivity is correlated with anxiety disorders and so on. And on Friday, we have Dr. Tarduno talking about the origin of inner core structure, like he did some experiments and found some new theories. So I think it will be a pretty interesting week. Um, And yeah, I hope I hear you all back soon. Enjoy your weekends, everyone.
1: And uh, bye. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. This was fantastic. We learned a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Okay close the room in three bye. Two, one bye everyone thank you bye